0: Book Five, Chapter Four of One of Ours. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. One of Ours by Willa Cather, Chapter Four. Deeper and deeper into flowery France. That was the sentence Claude kept saying over to himself to the jolt of the wheels as the long troop train went southward on the second day after he and his company had left the port of debarkation. Fields of wheat, fields of oats, fields of rye, all the low hills and rolling uplands clad with harvest, and everywhere in the grass, in the yellowing grain, along the roadbed, the poppies spilling and streaming. On the second day the boys were still calling to each other about the poppies, Nothing else had so entirely surpassed their expectations. They had supposed that poppies grew only on battlefields or in the brains of war correspondents. Nobody knew what the cornflowers were except Willie Katz, an Austrian boy from the Omaha packing-houses, and he knew only an objectionable name for them, so he offered no information. For a long time they thought the red clover blossoms were wild flowers. they were as big as wild roses. When they passed the first alfalfa field the whole train rang with laughter. Alfalfa was one thing, they believed, that had never been heard of outside their own prairie states. All the way down Company B had been finding the old things instead of the new, or, to their way of thinking, the new things instead of the old. The thatched roofs they had so counted upon seeing were few and far between, but American binders of well-known makes stood where the fields were beginning to ripen, and they were being oiled and put in order, not by peasants, but by wise-looking old farmers who seemed to know their business. Pear-trees trained like vines against the wall did not astonish them half so much as the sight of the familiar cottonwood growing everywhere. Claude thought he had never before realized how beautiful this tree could be. In verdant little valleys, along the clear rivers, the cottonwoods waved and rustled, and on the little islands of which there were so many in these rivers they stood in pointed masses, seemed to grip deep into the soil and to rest easy, as if they had been there forever, and would be there forevermore. At home, all about Frankfurt, The farmers were cutting down their cottonwoods because they were common, planting maples and ash trees to struggle along in their stead. Never mind. The cottonwoods were good enough for France, and they were good enough for him. He felt they were a real bond between him and this people. When B Company had first got their orders to go into a training camp in north-central France, all the men were disappointed. Troops much rawer than they were being rushed to the front so why fool around any longer? But now they were reconciled to the delay. There seemed to be a good deal of France that wasn't the war, and they wouldn't mind traveling about a little in a country like this. Was the harvest always a month later than at home, as it seemed to be this year? Why did the farmers have rows of trees growing along the edges of every field? Didn't they take the strength out of the soil?" What did the farmers mean by raising patches of mustard right alongside beside other crops? Didn't they know that mustard got into wheat-fields and strangled the grain? The second night the boys were to spend in Quoc, and they would have the following day to look about. Everybody knew what had happened at Quoc. If anyone didn't, his neighbors were only too eager to inform him. It had happened in the marketplace, and the marketplace was what they were going to find. Tomorrow, when it came, proved to be black and cold, a day of pouring rain. As they filed through the narrow crowded streets that harsh Norman city presented no very cheering aspect, they were glad at last to find the waterside, to go out on the bridge and breathe the air in the great open space over the river, away from the clatter of cartwheels and the hard voices and crafty faces of these townspeople who seemed rough and unfriendly from the bridge they looked up at the white chalk hills the tops a blur of intense green under the low lead-colored sky they watched the fleets of broad deep-set river barges coming and going under their feet with tilted smokestacks only a little way up that river was paris the place where every doughboy meant to go and as they leaned on the rail and looked down at the slow-flowing water each one had in his mind a confused picture of what it would be like. The Seine, they felt sure, must be very much wider there, and it was spanned by many bridges, all longer than the bridge over the Missouri at Omaha. There would be spires and golden domes past counting, all the buildings higher than anything in Chicago, and brilliant, dazzlingly brilliant, nothing gray and shabby about it like this old quamp. They attributed to the city of their desire incalculable immensity bewildering vastness, Babylonian hugeness and heaviness, the only attributes they had been taught to admire. Late in the morning Claude found himself alone before the church of Estewap. He was hunting for the cathedral, and this looked as if it might be the right place. He shook the water from his raincoat and entered, removing his hat at the door. The day, so dark without, was darker still within. Far away a few scattered candles, still little points of light, just before him in the gray twilight slender white columns in long rows like the stems of silver poplars. The entrance to the nave was closed by a cord, so he walked up the aisle on the right, treading softly, passing chapels where solitary women knelt in the light of a few tapers. Except for them The church was empty, empty. His own breathing was audible in this silence. He moved with caution lest he should wake an echo. When he reached the choir he turned and saw, far behind him, the rose window with its purple heart. As he stood staring, hat in hand, as still as the stone figures in the chapels, a great bell up aloft began to strike the hour in its deep, melodious throat eleven beats measured and far apart as rich as the colors in the window then silence only in his memory the throbbing of an undreamed-of quality of sound the revelations of the glass and the bell had come almost simultaneously as if one produced the other and both were superlatives toward which his mind had always been groping or so it seemed to him then In front of the choir the nave was open, with no rope to shut it off. Several straw chairs were huddled on a flag of the stone floor. After some hesitation he took one, turned it round, and sat facing the window. If someone should come up to him and say anything, anything at all, he would rise and say, Pardon, monsieur, je ne sais pas ce He repeated this to himself to be quite sure he had it ready. On the train coming down he had talked to the boys about the bad reputation Americans had acquired for slouching all over the place and butting in on things, and had urged them to tread lightly. But, Lieutenant, the kid from Pleasantville had piped up, isn't this whole expedition a butt-in? After all, it ain't our war. Claude laughed but he told him he meant to make an example of the fellow who went to rough He was well satisfied that he hadn't his restless companions on his mind now. He could sit here quietly until noon and hear the bell strike again. In the meantime he must try to think. This was, of course, Gothic architecture. He had read more or less about that and ought to be able to remember something. Gothic. That was a mere word to him. To him it suggested something very peaked and pointed, sharp arches, steep roofs. It had nothing to do with these slim white columns that rose so straight and far, or with the window burning up there in its vault of gloom. While he was vainly trying to think about architecture, some recollection of old astronomy lessons brushed across his brain, something about stars whose light travels through space for hundreds of years before it reaches the earth and the human eye. The purple and crimson and peacock green of this window had been shining quite as long as that before it got to him. He felt distinctly that it went through him and farther still, as if his mother were looking over his shoulder. He sat solemnly through the hour until twelve, his elbows on his knees, his conical hat swinging between them in his hand, looking up through the twilight with candid, thoughtful eyes. When Claude joined his company at the station, they had the laugh on him. They had found the cathedral, and a statue of Richard the Lionhearted over the spot where the Lionheart itself was buried. The identical organ, fat Sergeant Hicks assured him. But they were all glad to leave Quoc. End of book five, chapter four, recording by Tom Weiss.